Good morning. We are going to be in John chapter 8. Um, if you want to follow along with me in your Bibles, or it should be up there on the screen. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 30. It says this. Jesus spoke to them again. I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not valid. Even if I testify about myself, Jesus replied, my testimony is true because I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I judge no one. And if I do judge, my judgment is true because it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am the one who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. Then they asked him, where is your father? You know neither me nor my father, Jesus answered. If you knew me, you would also know my father. He spoke these words by the treasury while teaching in the temple, but no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Then he said to them again, I'm going away. You will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So Jesus said again, sorry, so the Jews said again, he won't kill himself, will he, since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. You are from below, he told them. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I told you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Who are you, they questioned. Exactly what I've been telling you from the very beginning, Jesus told them. I have many things to say and to judge about you, but the one who sent me is true, and what I have heard from him, these things I tell the world. They did not know he was speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own. But just as the Father taught me, I say these things. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, because I always do what pleases him. This is the word of the Lord. you. Great reader today, huh? <laughs> Thank you, babe. Appreciate that. Um, I grew up my, uh, most of my childhood in the same house uh, in Muskogee, Oklahoma, address 310 Kingsway from the time I was three years old until I was 17 years old. Uh, but then during my senior year, my, my family, my parents decided to, to move, that they were going to build a house. They had been talking to a builder at our church about this for a little while, and then they finally decided to pull the trigger, and so they, he got to work on building the house, and then we listed our, uh, our own house on the market there, and as is often the case, what, what ended up happening is our, our first house, the house we were living in, sold before our new house was finished and ready to move into, and so we had a period of about three or four months that we had to, uh, we had to find a place to live. And, and so we're, we're kind of looking for that, and, and this family in our church was really kind. They offered this place. They had this property that sat outside of town, 
And, uh, and on that property, there was a little house, and they said, you guys are free. You guys are welcome to go stay there as long as you need to until your house is finished, which was a, a really generous thing of them and a real blessing to our family. And so we packed up our stuff out of that house and moved it out to this home that sat uh, deep kind of outside of town, out into the woods. And it was a really great little place. It wasn't real big. It was just a two-bedroom house, but it was nice, and it was clean, and it was fully furnished. Uh, the only problem was that it was creepy. Uh, not the house itself exactly, the location of the house was creepy. Uh, it was, as I mentioned, kind of outside of town. To get there, you would go down this road, Hancock Road, until you get to the edge, and then all of a sudden, this straight road becomes this very long and curvy road that goes out to a place called Gooseneck Bend, and we would go through this heavily, it kind of gets very wooded there. There's these trees all over the place, and you kind of make your way a couple miles out, and then you take this big right turn, and as you go towards that right turn, you'll see this little gate on your left, and then you would take that. That was the driveway, which is a little over a quarter mile along, even deeper into the woods, and then you get to the end of that driveway, and there is the house. And, and so that, this area was really actually beautiful and pleasant during the day. It was nice and peaceful and quiet, really nice. But when the night came, when the night came, see, I, I grew up, like I said, my whole life within city limits. And when you grow up in city limits, um, you never realize how dark the night can be. You step outside at night and you think it's dark, and, and it is, but the truth is there's always, when you're in, in the city, there's always some form of light somewhere, whether that be the street light down on the corner or your neighbor's porch light across the street or a big sign lit up over some business somewhere. There's always light somewhere, but you go outside of town. You go uh, deep into the woods somewhere where the trees are blocking off all of those kinds of things, and you see just how dark it can get. I remember the first night I was there at that house by myself, and there were no blinds or curtains on the windows, and this realization as I looked out into the woods, into the darkness, like I know, I'm telling myself in this moment, I know nobody's out there, but if they are, uh, I can't see them, but they can see me. And that was a very unnerving moment when I came to that realization. There's this rule there at the house that the last person in always had to lock the gate behind them at the top of the driveway as they came in because there's also a big barn on the property with a bunch of equipment that they didn't want stolen and those kinds of things. And I hated being the last person in for the night. Because that meant I would have to pull through, in, pull through the gate there in the middle of the woods and get out in the middle of the night, which is exactly what the axe murderer wants you to do. Get out of your car in the middle of the night there and then walk back over to the gate with nothing but the faint glow of the taillights from my 87 Chevette lighting up this chain as I'm shaking and trying to put it together right there. And, and, and in my 87 Chevette, uh, well, I'll get to that in just a second, what I, 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 would, I would have this thing where it was a stick shift, right? And I couldn't, the emergency brake didn't work on it, which meant I could not just leave the car in neutral and let the engine keep running. I had to turn the engine off every time. Uh, and my, uh, my nightmare was that I was going to go lock that, and then I would go turn the key, and the engine wouldn't come back on. Like, I lived in fear of that, but I always had a game plan. It never happened, fortunately. My game plan, though, was if that ever happened, I was not going to follow the path of the driveway down to the house. I was just going to turn and cut, you know, in the direction of the house and just cut through the woods and sprint as fast as I could. 
And I figured if I did that, either one of two things would happen. Either A, I would get to the house really fast, or B, more likely, I would run into a tree and knock myself out, which was fine with me. As long as, I woke, as, long as it was daylight when I woke up. That was all I wanted. Uh, I remember also trying to play my stereo. I would try to find the cheesiest, most bubblegum pop song I could find on the radio and just blast that every time I had to get out of the car and lock up that gate because I figured in the horror movies nobody ever gets murdered to a Backstreet Boys song. So as long as I Want It That Way was playing, I was probably safe. But uh, what is it? What is it about the darkness that so unsettles us? When you're a kid, darkness is one of the first things you ever learn to be afraid of. I say learn. Truth is, nobody had to teach you to be afraid of the darkness. That just comes naturally. It comes naturally to almost every one of us. And, and the reality is, even as we get older and even as we kind of figure, I don't have to be afraid of my, uh, the monsters under my bed and those kinds of things, there's, there's something inside about the dark that never fully leaves us, Right? You hear a noise you don't recognize in your house during the daytime, and you go, oh, that's strange, and you go to investigate it. But you hear a noise you don't recognize in the middle of the night when you're laying in bed, and your heart rate begins to go up a little bit. What was that? You walk through the woods at 11 in the morning, and it's peaceful and beautiful and serene. You walk through those same woods at 11 o'clock at night, and all of a sudden you're hearing something behind every tree, right? And your pace is quickening a little bit. What is it? about the darkness that so unsettles us. I think on the surface, probably the most basic level answer to that question is this, that in the darkness, we do not know what's there. We don't know what it was that made that noise, and so our, our imagination is left to kind of run wild and figure out what's going on there. But I think there's actually something deeper to why we don't like the darkness, and that is because somewhere deep inside of us, I think we all know this, that we weren't meant for the darkness. At least not to live in it. No, no, no. You can, you can, you know, spend a couple hours in a dark movie theater. You can obviously go to sleep in your room at night in the dark. But none of us could live our entire lives in the darkness. No, no. Light is a fundamental component of life on planet Earth. It is essential for our survival. We weren't made for darkness. That is why I think so often in the Bible this idea of light is associated with God. The writers often use light and God in the same sentence as a metaphor for who he is and what life looks like when lived in his presence. The very first words out of God's mouth in the scriptures are what? Let there be light. God's people grab a hold of this, and, and the psalmist would often use this phrase in, in talking about God, let the light of your face shine upon us. It was used as kind of this description of, of God's blessing and his favor and his taking care of them in, in, in their distress or whatever they may need. The prophets would talk about the light of God. Ezekiel, in his visions of God, sees all these crazy things, but it often centers around light, this bright light around the throne of God where he he's at. Uh, the prophet Isaiah would speak of this future glorious day when God's people will not even need the sun because Yahweh himself will be their everlasting light. Light 
is what God is described as. And, and it's not to say in that moment, they're not saying that God is literally light, that he's literally shiny or bright or any of those things. No, no, no. What, what they're trying to get at there is this idea that everything good, life and peace and joy and purity and hope, everything that sustains the human soul, that all comes from God. The sad story of humanity, though, is that Something inside of all of us, when sin entered the picture, something inside of us got twisted, and we began to think that we could find all of those things, life and joy and peace and pleasure, that we could find all of those things apart from him. And so we moved ourselves away from him in search of true joy, in search of true freedom, and what we found ourselves doing was plunging ourselves into the middle of the darkness. We found everything opposite of that. We found death and destruction and pain and fear and hate because we had moved ourselves away from the light. We see this play out in the scriptures, particularly in the people of God and Israel in the Old Testament as they turn away from God and turn towards idols or they turn towards wicked gain or turn towards injustice and move themselves further and further away from the light of God. They find themselves in ruin and in this word gets used over and over again, darkness and gloom and destruction over them. But it's not just in the Bible, is it? And the truth is, you don't have to scroll through your news feed for very long at all to realize when you read about things like school shootings, the atrocities in Ukraine or in North Korea, when you hear about the things our brothers and sisters are going through in places like India or Indonesia, to know that the world that we live in is a very dark place. And if I'm going to be real honest, the truth is I don't need a news feed. Sometimes all I need is a mirror. Because I know all too well about the darkness that exists in here sometimes, the thoughts and the actions that flow from this heart. We live in a dark world, and we are part of the problem. Fortunately, the story doesn't end there. The prophets, even as they describe the great destruction, even as they describe the great doom and darkness that will settle over the people of Israel because of their sin, they would always look forward to this day when God was going to come and light would burst onto the scene again. One of the famous prophecies of this happens in Isaiah chapter 9. Verses 1 and 2 says this, Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times, when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. Now, fast forward 700 years from the point of that prophecy, and this man is standing up in the temple courts. This man from Galilee, by the way, is standing up in the temple courts, and, and this man has, has been doing these really incredible miracles. 
And people have been seeing the things that he's done, and it's starting to blow their minds, and this buzz is starting to take place throughout the whole region about this guy who's doing these amazing things, and he's teaching things that they haven't heard before, and he's teaching in ways that they've never heard before. When the temple guards went to arrest him, we heard about this two weeks ago, they come back to the leaders, and they go, no one ever spoke like this. So there's something about this man from Galilee, and he stands in the temple courts, and he proclaims the words that we just heard a few minutes ago, I am the light of the world and you might think in that moment after all the things that he's doing and after the prophecy about a light coming in Galilee and after he stands up in the court and says those things you might think that people would would be clamoring to come to him that they would rejoice in this that they would run and respond in faith and hope but that's not the case and of course if you've been with us from the beginning of John you know but that's not how this is going to work because John told us this much in the very beginning of his book, in the opening paragraphs of John. Chapter 1, he says this, verses 9 through 11, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And we see this very statement from John. He came to his own and they did not receive him. We see that at work in John chapter 8. When Jesus stands up and makes this proclamation. Let's look at it again. John chapter 8 starting in verse 12. Jesus spoke to them again. I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness. But will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not valid. Now, this is a fairly famous statement from Jesus, one that most of us recognize and know. I am the light of the world. But the question is, what does he mean when he says that? What does it mean that Jesus is light, the light of the world. And the thing is, the text here, as, as we'll read along, doesn't give a lot of direct explanation or teaching on this. As a matter of fact, if, if you've got a Bible, probably the theme at the top, if you've got like a subheading, it'll say the light of the world or something like that. But actually, this word light only comes up in this very first verse. And it doesn't get too much into actual explanations of what it means or the implications of that. That's because as soon as Jesus says it, as we just read, the Pharisees jump in and they begin to debate him. And so it almost seems to derail the conversation from the direction Jesus was going. But I want to suggest to you today that even as the Pharisees try to move the conversation in a different direction, that Jesus is still going to teach about light. He's still going to demonstrate who he is. And when we look at the statements that Jesus makes and compare them to other scriptures in John and the rest of the Bible that talk about light, we'll get to see what it means that Jesus is the light of the world. And maybe even more, when we look at the Pharisees, we're going to get to see what light is because we're going to get to see the contrast of that. We're going to get to see a group of people who have refused the light. And Jesus is going to say to them, because you refuse me, you are missing out on this and this and this. And as he begins to explain those things, we'll see what it is that Jesus is the light of the world and what it is we miss when we miss him. So take a look with me in verse 14. Even if I testify about myself, Jesus replied, my testimony is true because I know where I came from and where I'm going. 
but you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I judge no one, and if I do judge, my judgment is true, because it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am the one who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So they come to him after he claims to be the light of the world and says, no, no, no. Your witness, your testimony is not valid because it's just you. And the law tells us, specifically Deuteronomy 19, that uh, a testimony must be validated by two or three witnesses. You can't come and testify on behalf of yourself. Now, you may remember back in John chapter 5, this same argument came up, and Jesus told them it's not just him who testifies, but actually the Father, God himself, has been testifying on Jesus' behalf by sending John the Baptist as a witness to Jesus. He's testifying through the miracles that Jesus is doing. He's testifying by the very scriptures that they've been studying. Jesus says, those testify about me, and he reminds them of this. No, it's not just me. The Father and me are testifying, but he also makes this other kind of bolder statement, which is that this rule doesn't apply to me. I don't have to have more than one witness. I myself am adequate because, Jesus says, I know who I am. I know where I've come from. I know my origins. The Word was with God and was God at the very beginning. I know where I'm going. That is, he is soon going to ascend back to the throne, to the right hand of the Father. I know who I am, and so the rules don't apply to me. But you, Jesus says, you do not know. And actually, that will come up three different times in this text. The Pharisees don't know. The Pharisees can't see. And so this is the first thing we see. To be without Jesus, to be without the light, is to be without truth. That's what it means, that he's the light of the world. They cannot see it. And Jesus explains this is because all of their judgment, all of their reasoning is being done by human standards. From a man-made worldview, from their own limited vision is how they make all their judgments. Jesus says, I judge no one. He doesn't mean by that that I make no judgments. He's about to judge them. But he says, I don't judge like you do. From a limited human perspective. Now, this is to be expected. It's not crazy to say that they judge by human standards. They're human beings after all. That's why they need the one from above. That's why they need the light. It is only in the light of Jesus that people are able to see the truth about God, about the world, about themselves, about life. And that actually is a key part of the problem. Because as you read and look, it appears that the Pharisees, they don't really want that. They don't want to see the truth about themselves. They're not alone in this. Again, John informed us about this earlier in his gospel. John chapter 3, he says this, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it, so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. I mentioned earlier that one of the things that's so scary about the darkness is that we don't know what's there. That's true. But sometimes the scariest part about the darkness is that we know exactly what's there. I know exactly what's in here. And, and the realization 
is that if I come into the light, even though I might not like the darkness that I'm living in, it's more comfortable than coming into the light because the moment I step into the light of who Jesus is, it's going to expose some things about me that I might not want to see, that I might not want you to see, and that I want to pretend that he can't see. And to step into the light of Jesus might mean turning my entire world upside down. And so there are many, John says, who don't, as much as they might not even like the darkness, some of them will love it and they want to stay in it. Some of them might not be sure about it, but it's more comfortable than stepping into the light, and so they stay there in the darkness. This is especially true of the world, of those who don't follow Jesus. But can I tell you, I believe that this tendency to hide in darkness can stay with us sometimes, even even when we choose to follow Jesus, even those of us, for those of us who are already in the light. You know that tendency when you when you know that you're living in sin and so you find yourself kind of avoiding community or at least avoiding any sort of conversation beyond surface level with brothers and sisters for fear of where that conversation might go, where you find yourself kind of putting emotional barriers up between you and the word of God, even as it's preached on a Sunday morning because you don't want to deal with the conviction that you might feel in that, or or you find yourself avoiding God in prayer because of the shame that sits over you. This, This natural tendency in all of us is when sin is there is to keep it in the dark, but here's what you need to know. Our sin does not go away in the dark. Just because you can't see it or just because you think other people can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. It's still there. The truth remains for you to stumble over. Jesus will continue, though. He says that the Father testifies about him, and here's how they respond in verse 19. Then they asked him, where is your father? You know neither me nor my father, Jesus answered. If you knew me, you would also know my father. He spoke these words by the treasury while teaching in the temple, but no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. So here's the second thing we see. When Jesus calls himself the light of the world, it means this, that to be without Jesus is to be without God. This is probably the biggest point of this whole text. The biggest idea, we mentioned earlier several places where the Old Testament constantly uses the imagery of light to describe God. The New Testament writers do the same thing. They jump onto this and and will use this kind of idea in describing God. James, in his epistle, calls God the father of all lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Paul says that God is invisible, that he dwells in unapproachable light. And then John, in his own epistles, will describe this. He says it most explicitly. This is the message we heard from him and declare to you, God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. So when Jesus calls himself light, that's not a random statement. He's drawing on all these different ideas and word pictures throughout the scriptures that describe God as that. And he's taking that and he's applying that to himself. It's not a random statement. In fact, I don't think the setting for this statement is random either. Did you notice that right here in the middle of this thing, John feels compelled to stop and tell us about the location of all of this. Verse 20, did you see it? He spoke these words by the treasury while teaching in the temple. Why does John do that? I can't prove it. I don't know this for sure, but I, I feel really compelled. I, I believe that John does that on purpose. 
I think that he's telling us this for a specific reason because this text right here is taking place during the Feast of Tabernacles. Justin talked about this a couple weeks ago, that this was in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles. And on the last day of the feast, Jesus stood up and said, if anyone is thirsty, come to me, and streams of living water will flow from him. Well, if it's true what Jim said last week, that the first 11 verses of John chapter 8 weren't originally there, and I believe that they weren't. If you weren't here last week and that's freaking you out for a second, don't worry, go, go listen to Jim's sermon from last week. But if that's true, that means that our text is actually a continuation of Justin's text, flowing right there on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles or shortly after. Well, Justin told you there was this special water ceremony that took place every morning and that Jesus is probably playing off of that when he says, living water will flow from you. Did you know there wasn't just a water ceremony at the Feast of Tabernacles? But during Jesus' day, every night, there was a ceremony of light that they would gather in what was called the Court of Women, the court of women didn't mean that it was only women allowed. It just meant this was the furthest court that the women could go into. There was two beyond that, the court of Israelites where the men could go and the court of priests. But the court of women was the largest one, and that's where a lot of the action took place. That's where the temple tree, the offering boxes were. And so in the court of women, at night, they would bring these giant candelabras, four giant candelabras, and each of them had four bowls of oil that came off of those things. It's said that these things were 50 cubits high, which would be roughly 75 feet up in the air. And you'd have to get on a ladder to climb up and light these things at night. And as they lit these things, the steps that came down from the court of the Israelites into the court of women, there were 15 steps, and they were lined with all the Levites who were there with musical instruments. And they began to play these instruments. And the people would gather in the court there, and they would begin to sing the psalms, and they began to dance with torches. And we don't know exactly what it looked like, but someone has tried to kind of draw kind of a recreation of what this may have looked like on those given nights when the court would fill up with light from all these places. It is said, some of the writings of the time say that there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that was not lit up from the light of the temple at this moment as this blazing torches came off the yellow limestone and reflected out into the world. And, and so this take, takes place in the court of women. Well, where is Jesus when he stands up and he says, I am the light of the world? It says right there, he spoke these words by the treasury, that is the offering boxes. The offering boxes were in the court of women. So I think what Jesus is doing in this moment is he is standing up in the very place where the light ceremony is, which was supposed to represent the Shekinah glory of God, the glorious presence of God that once filled the temple. And Jesus stands there in the courtyard and says, it's happening right in front of your eyes. The glory of God is back in its temple. The glory of God is right here, and they cannot see it. Jesus says to them, you think you know God. You want to know God. You want to see his glory. You don't know God because you don't know me. You cannot know the Father without knowing me. This is one of the key messages of John's gospel, that you and I were made to know God. We were made like flowers open up to the sun to receive its light. That's what we're supposed to be. That's where we find our life. That's where we find our joy is with God. We were made for him, and yet we cannot know God apart from his son. There is no such thing as a generic relationship with God. There is no such thing as a general faith in God. No, our access to him comes through a specific means, through a specific person, and that is the God-man Jesus Christ. 
This is the biggest theme of this text. Without Jesus, you do not have God. But that theme will open up one more key idea for us. Look at verse 21. Then he said to them again, I'm going away. You will look for me and you will die in your sins because where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said again, he won't kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, he's talking about his death and then resurrection and ascension into heaven. So you can't go there. So no, he's not going to kill himself. But it does have to do with his death. And he says, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I told you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Who are you, they questioned. Exactly what I've been telling you from the very beginning, Jesus told them. I have many things to say to you and to judge about you, but the one who sent me is true, and what I have heard from him, these things I tell the world. Here's the third thing we see about Jesus as the light of the world. It means this, that to be without Jesus is to be without salvation. It's to be without life. Three times he says to them in this text, because you do not believe in me, you will die in your sins. John, in his gospel and in his epistles, he often connects the ideas of light and life together. In fact, Jesus did it at the very beginning of our passage. Anyone who comes to me will walk in the light of life, says and this makes sense because this is something that God's people often did. They spoke of God's salvation and his deliverance in terms of light. Like in Psalm 27.1, David says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? Or Micah, after confessing Israel's great sin and how that's put them in ruin, he still looks to a day of hope. So in Micah 7, he says, He, God, will bring me into his light, and I will see his salvation. In fact, when the psalmist, I talked, they, they often spoke of God's face shining on them. Most of the time when they spoke of God's face shining on them, that was in the context of him delivering them from their troubles, saving them from their darkness, saving them from their sin. And this is exactly what the light of the world came to do, to deliver us from the darkness that we have plunged ourselves into. And how does he do that? Verse 27, they did not know he was speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own, but just as the Father taught me, I say these things. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone because I always do what pleases him. He says, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know. That phrase, to lift up the Son of Man, to lift up Jesus, that takes place three times in the Gospel of John. And it's an interesting phrase because the Greek word for lift up is, is almost always used like figuratively. It means like to, to exalt, to lift up in honor, to glorify. But, but John, he's a big fan of double meanings. And so it, it does mean to lift up and exalt in honor, but it means something else. And he'll actually explain this to us the third time that Jesus uses this phrase. That happens in John chapter 12, verses 32 and 33. Here's what Jesus says. As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And then John clarifies. He said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. 
See, in John's gospel, Jesus will be exalted, but what he means is it will happen when he is lifted up on a cross. When he is lifted up to die for us, this is how he will save us from darkness, by entering into our darkness, by coming into the middle of the darkness and all the sins that we have created for ourselves and taking those things upon himself, all the sins that separated us from the light, all the things that separated us from the life that we needed because they separated us from God. Jesus comes to take all of those things on himself so that they will no longer separate us. And it gets really interesting because Jesus says, in that moment, when you lift me up on the cross, that's when you will know. That's when you will know that I am he. Actually, the Greek doesn't have the word he there. It just says this. That's when you will know that I am. More than likely a reference to his own divinity. We'll get into that a little bit more next week. I don't think in this moment he's making a prediction that as soon as they crucify him, they're all going to believe in him because that doesn't happen. Now, I think actually what Jesus is doing here, he seems to be saying the clearest picture of who I am and therefore of who God is is going to be seen when I'm on the cross. All the things I've been trying to say to you, all the things that I've been seeking to explain and demonstrate for you, that will finally come into focus in the moment that you crucify me and put me on the cross. That is when you'll see me. It is not in Jesus' miracles that we get the clearest picture of who he is, even though they are phenomenal and they demonstrate his power. And John says they are signs pointing to his identity. But it's not in the miracles and it's not in his teaching that we most clearly see who Jesus is, even though his teaching is incredible and it blows people people's minds and they've never heard anything like that. No, no, no. The clearest picture of who Jesus is, the clearest picture of the heart of God takes place when he is suffering on a cross. In other words, the light of the world shines most brightly when taking all of our darkness upon itself. When he takes all of our sins and all of our darkness to the cross with them and then he smashes it to pieces through his death and through his resurrection. That's how we see who Jesus is. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 4, calls this idea the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. When you see Jesus on the tree, when you see him suffering and dying and resurrecting, that is the light of the gospel shining in your ways. And, and many people will not be able to see this. They will be blinded to this because the God of this age, that is Satan, is working to blind people to it. And there's a veil over their eyes and they don't want to see these things. But Paul says something miraculous can happen when the gospel is preached. When Jesus is proclaimed as the one who died for our sins and resurrected again, God has the ability to undo the blindness in us. He says this in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And that very thing actually happened on the day that Jesus said all these things. Look at the very next verse, John chapter 8, verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. And it has been my hope and prayer this week that the same kind of thing would happen today. That some of you in this room who perhaps have been walking in darkness your whole life, Maybe because you didn't want the light, maybe because you thought the light was not a place that you could dwell. 
that have been walking in that separated from God and something inside of you, deep inside of you, knows that to be true, my prayer for you this week has been that you would see the light of Jesus, that you would see the light of the world who has come to enter into your darkness. And maybe even for some, John describes this truth, that there are some people who think they are in the light, but when they examine their lives and they examine their hearts, there is nothing in them that looks like that. There's no obedience to Jesus. There's no love for him. There's no love for his people. And he says in the epistle of 1 John, if you say that you have the light, but there's nothing in your life that matches up with that, you're still in darkness. And my hope and prayer is that even if there are people like that in here, that they would come to see the darkness for what it is, but they would also come to see the light that has come to save them out of it. And for those of you who are already in the light, We've already walked in the light. This is the call for you. This is mentioned multiple times in the New Testament, like in Ephesians 5, 6. It says this, you used to be darkness, but now you are light, and therefore walk as children of the light. Don't walk in darkness anymore. Don't go back to the very thing he saved you from. Don't live like the world when he has brought you out of that. That we would not hide from him in our sin like Adam and Eve did in the garden, thinking that we could not face him. No, no, no. The very reason he came was to save you out of that. Even your guilt, even your shame for those things, he came to save you out of those things. You are children of the light. Live like that. Here's our reflection questions for the day. Two questions for you to think on. The first is this. As you reflect on your state... Are you hiding in the darkness today? Whether that means that you have never actually stepped into the light, that you have never placed faith in Jesus and given your life to him, or whether that means you actually trust him, but you have been finding yourself walking in the patterns of sin and darkness recently. If so, what keeps you from stepping into the light? What holds you back from talking to someone today? Confessing your sin, what holds you back from, from coming to find the light that came to find you? And saving you from those things. The second question, do you know someone who is lost in the darkness? My guess is the answer for all of us is yes. My hope is that one name, one face comes to mind in this moment and that you would do this. Ask God to open their eyes to the light of the glory of the gospel in Jesus Christ. And ask God to give you opportunities to show the light of Jesus to them. Jesus not only says, I am the light of the world. He says in Matthew 5, you are now the light of the world. My people. And so praying that God would open their eyes and give us a chance to do that. Take a couple minutes to reflect on these questions.